Welcome, friends, to Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. I am your host, Curtis Kopotic, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Amber Brown. And we're really excited today to be talking about sleep apnea, which is a more exciting conversation than you might think. Today, we have WorkSteps Vice President of Sleep Medicine, John Varela, to talk to us about sleep apnea, how it gets diagnosed, testing, and all of these other good things. So take a listen. Thank you for being with us today, John, to talk about a subject that hopefully doesn't put our listeners to sleep, but will help them get better sleep. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and who you're with? Hey, how's it going? My name is John Varela. I'm Vice President of Sleep Medicine at WorkSteps. I've got roughly 18 years experience in the field of neurophysiology of sleep and treatment of sleep disorders. I run sleep apnea testing and treatment program for WorkSteps. We've got a couple of the largest trucking companies in the U.S. that we do all their sleep apnea testing on site and also are partnered with occupational health groups all over the country for a mail-out sleep apnea testing program and treatment program. It's kind of the gist of it. That's interesting that we use because we've had one of your co-workers, Ben, on who talked a lot about work steps as far as, you know, doing the pre-employment testing. So that's very intriguing that you also deal with sleep apnea. Now, how does the how do those two correlate? Well, actually, to back up just a little bit in bringing up Dr. Hoffman, I started my original company about three and a half years ago in Seattle, trying to help folks that had either didn't have insurance or were underinsured and ended up falling into the occupational health space. Back in 2007, the Federal Motor Safety Carrier Administration put together a panel of which Dr. Hoffman uh, chaired and wrote the federal recommendation for sleep apnea testing and treatment within transportation. And so I knew of him. I knew who he was. His son started a company years ago, third-party administrator managing OC Health and drug testing, medical review, medical surveillance for a couple of other large occupational health and transportation companies. And they initially acquired my first company. And then we merged with WorkSteps to become one of the only single source providers of everything occupational health and risk management in the U.S. And Dr. Hoffman, as he told you before, was at previously at Waste Management, then GE, and he's been with a, a few other large global companies. He was part of the company, but once the merger went through, he ended up taking over as chief medical officer with us. Originally, when the folks at Eureka Health Solutions wanted to partner and I found out that their father was Dr. Hoffman, it was a no-brainer for me. What we know about transportation and sleep apnea is that actually, let's go back to just general population. In the US, about 9% of the general population has sleep apnea. When you go into transportation, that jumps up to almost 30% of the drivers over the road have sleep apnea. And that's you know, kind of related to lack of movement, that what they're eating on the road, and you know they're behind the wheel for 14 hours a day. There's a huge correlation between the two, and then that also is causes risk for heart disease and diabetes. Well, definitely. I can see the, the so many ways in which that lifestyle does not, you know, does not help any of the symptoms or, you know, it has all those red flags for those risks. So for those who don't know, let's just kind of break down what is sleep apnea and how does it affect the workforce? So sleep apnea, the basics of it, apnea means to stop breathing for at least 10 seconds or longer. Sleep apnea is to do that while sleeping. Uh, sleep apnea is, a ter- is the name of 
a kind of a blanket name. What we're really talking about is obstructive sleep apnea. Obstructive sleep apnea is when the upper airway becomes occluded, whether that's it collapses. When we're talking about weight, sometimes because, you know, when people have a double chin, <laughs> as our doctor used to say, our old medical director, he would say if this if the flesh is coming out, it's also going in. And so that can also cause an obstruction in there. So what we see with sleep apnea is when you're asleep, as you exhale, the airway collapses. When you go to get that next breath, your body struggles to get that breath. And when air starts going back through, that's when you get a snore. A snore is actually the air trying to get through that collapsed flesh. And so one thing that we like to say is that not everybody with, that snores has sleep apnea, but almost everybody who has sleep apnea snores. Interesting. So what kind of people snore but don't have sleep apnea? Well, I mean, you can have upper airway resistance and you can have not a full occlusion in the upper airway and you'll still get that snoring. Uh, in order to have an actual apneic event, you have to have a full occlusion for at least 10 seconds or longer or a 30 to 70% reduction with an awake, uh, followed by an awakening and then an associated oxygen desaturation with it. So when we're scoring a sleep test and <laughs> to get into the boring stuff, there's a few, <laughs> a few different types of events that we're looking at. So one is an apneic event where you fully stop breathing. There's hypopneas, which are partial events, where there's that 30 to 70% reduction followed by an awakening and an associated oxygen desaturation of at least three to 4%. And then you have other more mild events, and those are called respiratory-related arousals. For somebody who's young, let's say, you know, the over-the-road drivers are getting younger and younger, and so we see a lot of these guys that'll come in at, you know, 22, 23, 24 years old, and they meet every other indicator for sleep apnea, but because they have a you know, really strong set of lungs and a strong heart, their body's able to oxygenate itself. So we may see that they have respiratory, yeah, respiratory related arousal index events per hour of say 15, 20 or 30, but their actual AHI, their apnea and hypopnea index, apneas and hypopneas are the events that cardiothoracic society has deemed medically significant. They may have an AHI of five, you know, barely have sleep apnea, you know, a textbook sleep apnea, but they're having those respiratory-related arousals that could potentially cause a sleepiness, but overall don't technically cause the body harm, according to the Cardiothoracic Society. So you mentioned that a greater number of the population of drivers and, and over-the-road workers are affected by sleep apnea. Why is this something that we need to pay attention to? Um, how does it affect their their daily lives? This is just when they sleep. So why is it a big deal for, for when they're driving? Well, the FMCSA's Medical Review Board had put together a piece of research in this panel to go over sleep apnea and transportation. And you know what they found is that if a driver has an AHI, so an average amount of events uh, of hypopneas and apneas over 20, then their risk of crash jumps significantly. And the reason for that is that they fall asleep while driving. If you're the best way to look at the AHI or respiratory distress index, those are awakenings. So at the point that you're at 20 greater than 20 events per hour, you're waking up 20 times an hour. Now, one of the interesting things about our brains and our bodies is that our brains do everything that they can to preserve sleep. So we all wake up at least four or five times. If you slept perfectly, you would still wake up four or five times a night in between sleep cycles. But 
our brains throw out that information so that they can help preserve sleep. And so we don't remember when we wake up, when we toss and turn in the middle of the night, which is also another uh, kind of brings up another good point. About 90% of patients with sleep apnea don't realize that they have sleep apnea. The signs and symptoms of sleep apnea are not aren't easy to see. They're not visible. I like to break it down when I'm talking to large groups about why people can't see that they have sleep apnea in an experience that I had when I first got glasses. I'd worked in the same hospital for 15 years. Well, this is the first couple of years working in the hospital. I was up on the 10th floor. There, our sleep center was right next to IV therapy, and then down the hall is respiratory therapy. And I never really had to go down to the respiratory therapy department, but people would always stop at the front desk of the sleep center to ask where respiratory therapy was. Well, I had gone down, got my eyes checked, you know, been working at this hospital for a while, had good insurance, they paid for everything. So I got got glasses. First day I got my glasses, I came walking around the corner and looked down the hall and there's this giant respiratory therapy sign. So I went in and talked with our receptionist and said, Chris, Chris, check this out. They finally put a big sign at the end of the hallway. And she said, John, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, everybody's always stopping here to see where respiratory therapy is, but now they'll know there's a big sign at the end of the hallway. And she's like, John, what are you talking about? I said, Chris, come here. Look at this. So we walked out into the hallway and I pointed down the hall and I said, look at that giant respiratory therapy sign. Now people will stop bothering you. And she said, John, that sign's been there forever. I lived in a world that because that wasn't part of the world that I could see, it didn't exist. Right. And sleep apnea is the same way. People with sleep apnea don't just wake up one day tired. It's a progressive deal. So, you know, there's a little bit of snoring. There's a little bit of this. There's a little bit of that. But overall, when they wake up every day and they're sleepy and tired, that's just their normal state. That's the world they live in. And that's the world that they can see. It's not until you can fix that deficit that people realize that they actually have sleep apnea or there's, they're working in a deficit. So that's one of the reasons why uh, there's a lot of pushback in the transportation side of things is because until somebody can recognize that they have a deficit that they're working in, does it really exist? Or is that just the, their normal everyday life? So my aunt was actually just recently diagnosed with sleep apnea and it's taken years to get around to her being tested for this. And now with this diagnosis, she just told me a couple of weeks ago, it makes all the sense of in the world, you know, and, and seeing all these different signs and symptoms, but they've been testing her, you know, for all of these other ailments and, and other things going on. So how do drivers actually get flagged for sleep apnea or how can they recognize these signs and symptoms? Well, so that brings up a couple of good points. So first, sleep apnea is a relatively new field of medicine. It wasn't until the late 70s that they were able to diagnose sleep disorder breathing. It wasn't until 1983 when Colin Sullivan designed the first CPAP device. So then you had to go through all of the research phases and everything else with it. It wasn't until the mid to late 90s that insurances were actually paying for sleep sleep apnea testing. And then we had the big boom through the early 2000s of sleep centers opening up everywhere. And you had this whole fad state to it where everybody just thought, oh, okay, everybody's got sleep apnea. But the more research we've done, the more the longer it's been around, uh, the insurance companies and major medical institutions are realizing that when they have patients that have high blood pressure and they're meeting these other indicators with BMI and they're looking inside the upper airway to see what that looks like, they're realizing, oh, this patient has sleep apnea and that's what's causing their high blood pressure. Diabetes type 2, same thing. And that kind of leads us into how the medical examiner flags a patient for sleep apnea. The FMCSA had put out a set of recommendations for it sleep apnea screening. And what they're looking at is patients with a BMI of 33 
to 35, if they have 33 to 40, if they have three other indicators, then they should be tested for sleep apnea because according to the research they have, they are likely to have moderate to severe sleep apnea. And those other indicators that we're looking at, for men, it's a neck circumference of 17 inches or greater. For women, it's 15 and a half or greater. If they have any issues with hypertension, high blood pressure, diabetes type 2, or elevated sugar levels in, in their urine, history of stroke, heart attack, coronary artery, artery disease, arrhythmias. Also, one of the things that uh, we find one of our big focuses uh, at WorkSteps and WorkSteps Sleep specifically is to do as much patient education with our folks that call us as possible. We want to make sure that the drivers that we see understand first why they're there and what we're actually testing for. So one other piece that the medical examiner is looking at is retro and micronathia. The way we I like to explain that is everybody's familiar with that really strong chin like Jay Leno. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course, how, you can't miss it. Yeah, <laughs> right. So the reverse of that is is a weak, kind of a weak jaw. Most all of us have the same size jaw, whether it's set in a normal spot, set like Jay Leno's, or set in more of a weaker stance. If it's in that weak jaw, we refer to that as retromicronathia. The examiner is looking at, at the drivers at the first point that they walk in, and they're doing a quick assessment there. They're also asking if they snore. They look in the upper air, airway to get a grade on what's called uh, the melampotty scale, which is the opening in the upper airway. So when the doctor tells you to open your mouth, stick out your tongue and say, ah, there's a grading system for how how big the opening is back there. They also ask the driver if anybody's witnessed them stopping breathing or pausing in their breaths while they're sleeping, checking for hyperthyroidism. And here's, you know, one indicator is men older than 42 and women postmenopausal. Postmenopausal women have a 50% greater chance of having sleep apnea than pre or peri. And then drivers with a BMI of 40 or above are recommended for sleep testing also. And then there's also a couple of other factors. Uh, the medical examiner will also ask if they've had any sleep-related incidents, meaning have they fallen asleep while driving, crashed, had a crash related to falling asleep or drowsy driving. Those indicators are automatic DQs, uh, disqualifiers, and they would need to go in for sleep testing and be treated on therapy and signed off by a sleep physician before they can get back behind the wheel. Well, I'm really wishing that I have a tape measure here uh, near my desk in my <laughs> office and see how, how big around my neck is. Uh, <laughs> You're feeling self-conscious too. It's not just me. That's good. So, yeah. <laughs> I know I've been snoring since I was in high school, but. <laughs> so I'll give you a little personal information about about me specifically. So I don't know exactly what my BMI is, but it's definitely in the in the mid mid 30 range. So I'm 5'7", 230 pounds. My neck circumference is about 17 and a half to 18 inches. I have a melon potty score of, I think I'm actually at a three. So that's another indicator. Intermittently have high blood pressure. I don't take any medication. But right now, in my current state, I have moderate sleep apnea. My AHI, I believe is 16. So the average amount of events per hour is 16. I'm also 41 years old. So as it if I were to go in and get a CDL exam today and a doctor sent me for sleep testing, I would need to use a CPAP device. I do use a CPAP device. If I don't use it, my wife hits me at night. It's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> Just to keep the marriage alive. <laughs> but, but on the flip side of that, so I'm, I'm relatively active. I play soccer two nights a week. About three and a half years ago, I blew out my knee and packed on a bunch of weight. And so when 
I'm 20 pounds lighter than I am now. I barely have any sleep apnea and I don't snore and I, I don't snore loud enough for my wife to hit me. So interesting. So just 20 pounds has made all that big of a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay. you know, I'm trying to get back at it and get back out to running and playing soccer more, but just to give you an idea of how weight is related to that. So besides the weight loss, what are some other effective treatments for this? Well, CPAP is the gold standard for sleep apnea treatment, and that's continuous positive airway pressure. Everybody has heard of CPAP. There's always a joke about, Luke, I am your father. (laughs) The Darth Vader machine, yep. (laughs) But realistically, the machines have gotten significantly quieter. The masks have gotten significantly smaller. Like the mask I use, it's the AirFit P10. It's just a small little tiny mask with a little... They're called nasal pillows. They just sit right inside the mares, the nostril openings. And it's small, it's light, it's easy to use. It's actually pretty interesting. Our medic, our sleep medical director, Dr. Ruben Walia out here in Seattle, we travel a lot to conferences or whatever and share hotel rooms. And he's, as a sleep physician, he's always blown away at how quiet my machine is when we're sharing a hotel room. So CPAP is the gold standard. There's weight loss. Um, if it's mild sleep apnea, Positional therapy uh, is a thing. You've seen a lot of commercials on TV for smart pillows or beds that have anti-snoring systems in them. And essentially what they do is reposition, help the patient reposition themselves. Back in the olden days, the the doctors would tell the patient, olden days, I'm talking about like the early 2000s. (laughs) They are the olden days, unfortunately. Doctors would tell patients to sew a tennis ball on the back of their night shirts or pajamas. And then that seems very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that way they don't. So anytime they roll over onto their back, because when you lay on your back, everything falls into the back of the upper airway, making sleep apnea worse. So you can sleep on your side and it will be less, or you can sleep on your stomach and wake up with a backache. (laughs) Now, me personally, I prefer to sleep on my back, but there are times when I roll and then I get my wife that smacks me to put me back on my, on my stomach. (laughs) As humans, we were designed to sleep on our back. Interesting. So, yeah. And so, and it's interesting too, because now I ran sleep studies for eight and a half, nine years. And it'd be interesting. We would see patients with severe sleep apnea come in, they'd try to sleep on their back. And as they're starting to fall asleep, they'd roll over under their side. And then throughout the night, multiple times, they'd roll over under their back, stop breathing, turn back over to their side. Our bodies want to sleep on its back, but our body, our brains and our bodies are actually pretty smart. And so they realize that if I can't sleep on my back, then I'm going to roll over and take care, take care of the problem. So they perform their own sleep positional therapy on itself then. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third option would be bimaxillary oral advancement device. So that what that is, people think of night bite guards. This takes it a step further where it clips into your lower and upper jaw and just kind of pushes your, your lower jaw forward a bit. And we find that that's mostly for mild, the more mild cases that works, but that can also cause, if you have any issues with TMJ, then it can make that worse and give you a jaw pain in the morning. I actually tried it. I can't sleep with it. Not to mention they're extremely expensive. There's one over the counter device that a lot of physicians will recommend patients try first because it's like 30, 40 bucks to buy one versus the $3,000 to have one made. And if you can't sleep, yeah. And the insurances usually don't cover it. Yeah, that doesn't sound very comfortable. 
I wanted to take a quick break in this interview to talk to you about things we have going on at Fit for Work. We know that your time is valuable and you have a lot to do. We are here to be a dedicated resource to help take care of your employees, not just by treating them and taking care of them after they're sore, but helping them before that through ergonomic observations, assessments, behavior training, doing so much more than just being there. We get out, we get to know the people, and we help them to help your company move forward to the next level. Get a hold of us at wellworkforce.com, click on connect with us, and start helping your employees. John, so we've talked, you know, we talked about what is sleep apnea, how it affects this workforce, and now some of the treatments as well. How does work steps fit into all of this? You know, once we've, since we're talking about the occupational health space, I'm just going to kind of keep it directed towards that. Work steps does testing in a multiple different ways. We do on-site testing for large trucking companies in their terminals. We go in, we uh, see a group of drivers, do a quick instruct on how to use the testing equipment. We'll get into the testing equipment in just a minute here, but we'll give them a quick instruct on how to use the testing equipment. And half of the drivers are going back to a hotel room and the other half are just sleeping in their truck because they just stopped in to do their test and be back out on the road. The next morning, they'll come back in to the terminal, we'll download the equipment, and if they have sleep apnea, we'll set them up with a CPAP device then and there. They'll take it out, and they'll be on their way. All of the new sleep uh, CPAP machines have wireless monitoring in them. They use wireless modems, basically just like the data on your cell phone that works off of cell towers, and so the compliance reports are updated every morning to us. Uh, We have a group of therapists that work in Austin that are doing all of our compliance tracking. The new machines have become so sophisticated, we can tell if there's a high mask leak at night. We can tell just by some of the the flow patterns, whether a patient is breathing through their nose or their mouth. And then if they're having therapy issues, it drops the information goes into what we call a bucket system. So we have a handful of patients that are having issues with mask leaks, our therapist will call them. We have folks that are in danger of not being compliant. We'll have them, you know, called them from a different bucket. Patients who aren't u- using a machine, they'll be in a different bucket. And so we're just constantly on the phone with these folks all day long. One of the neat things, nationally, compliance rates, the compliance rate for DOT and FMCSA is the exact same as it is for Medicare and insurance companies. So it's 70% of the nights, four hours of the night for at least 70% of the nights. And we're looking at 30 and 90 day windows. For initial compliance, we're looking at a 30 day window. For your yearly compliance, we're looking at a 90 day window. And nationally, we see compliance across the board, DOT and traditional medicine runs at about 55%. We're running at about 89% compliance, which is pretty darn good. That's amazing. Great job. Yeah. <laughs> there, <laughs> there are a lot of a lot of folks out there that, you know, just really, really struggle with it. And so we may be, we may have folks that put the CPAP on on the first night, do great with it. We only talk to them a couple of times before they become compliant. We have other folks who we may be on the phone with them 30 times, changing out the masks, you know, three, four, five different times in order to get the right mask for them. And you know, we're a really high touch when we need to be group. And that's the other thing that we do. The manufacturer has 30 day guarantees on their masks. You know, people can, as far as cost goes, we're not the cheapest, but we're also, you know, below that middle, middle ground. And if somebody were to go onto an e-commerce site and buy the equipment, they wouldn't get 
that personal touch where they're, we're calling to follow up on compliance, changing out masks. When we have to change a mask out, we don't charge the, uh, the drivers or the patients for it. We just switch it out and the manufacturers have guarantees on them. So we don't lose anything. They don't lose anything. And we get our drivers compliant. So it's kind of like when you, you say when you provide a service to somebody, the it's like an ergonomic tool just because you've given them a tool. But if you don't instruct them on how to use it, it's kind of useless um, or not as effective as it could be. You, you provide that personal touch of how to use it, making sure they get the right one. Exactly. And then on the other side, we have a uh, a direct-to-consumer program. We've partnered with a couple of large occupational health groups and we're preferred providers for them. So they give the patients our information when they're done with their DOT. If they've been recommended for sleep testing, they contact us directly. And we have a team that contacts them, mails the equipment out to them, and gets it back and we handle all that virtually. Now, one thing that we didn't talk about as far as the testing equipment goes, we use a system called WatchPad. It's made by an Israeli company, Itamar, and they have the most technologically advanced device that's on the market. It also has the only FDA-approved forensic chain of custody unit that's available for sleep home sleep testing. What that means, years ago when home sleep testing first started, specifically within transportation, uh, drivers got smart <laughs> and realized that if they're taking a sleep test home and they, they're they almost positive that they have sleep apnea, well, who's to know if they were to put that test on their wife or their child so or sneaky. whoever? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Right. I wish I could be that smart sometimes. Right. I'm just not that smart and clever, I, think, I feel like. <laughs> so the FMCSA and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine put out a report that, they, you know, if you're doing home sleep testing, there should be some sort of chain of custody unit with it. Now, there is a universal system out there that does technically work with other home sleep testing devices, but it is not FDA approved for them. Our system, everything with our system is FDA approved. WatchPat has the least amount of equipment that you have to wear. What that means, for the traditional home sleep apnea test, you have a belt which monitors respiratory effort. You have a nasal cannula that plugs into your nose, kind of like an oxygen cannula to monitor airflow in and out. You have a snore microphone. You may have a couple of other sensors, plus a pulse oximeter that goes onto your finger. And then you've got wires and belts hanging all over you. With WatchPad, it's called WatchPad because it's literally just a watch you wear one probe that goes on your finger, and then one wire that tapes to your chest, which gives us body position, can show respiratory effort, and has a snore microphone built into it. So we can actually measure the uh, snores in decibels. You know, and we are constantly seeing drivers max out the snore microphone at 70 decibels throughout the night, which is pretty loud. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that's close to when uh, hearing is affected, correct? Yeah, it's get, it's definitely getting up there would also affect your bed partner's sleep as well. Or if you're driving in a team, I'm sure that's not great for the other driver that's trying to drive while you're sawing logs in the back of the back of the truck. <laughs> We'd also have the chain of custody unit on it. So when we mail out the sleep testing devices um, for our direct-to-consumer business, we actually set up a video conference with them to give them an instruct. And then we actually have one of our techs, visually watch them put the chain of custody bracelet on them so that we know that the person that's doing the test is actually the, the person that is supposed to be doing the test. Wow, that is huge. Yeah. And this is done right in somebody else's home or, or where they normally sleep. They don't have to go into a, a certain sleep center and sleep in somebody else's bed or a, a hospital bed or anything, correct? 
Exactly. That's amazing. Which brings up a couple of different things. So yeah, one, yes, you get to do it in the comfort of your own home. And then two, it improves access. Nationally, we see access rates at about 55 days to get in for a sleep test. Now, to do a sleep test in a traditional setting, you need to go in and see a doc, the specialist, the sleep specialist, and then you need to schedule the sleep test, and then you need to schedule an appointment to come back. So let's just say just to get in to get the test is 55 days. If you have a 90-day conditional card to get sleep testing, well, if you called on that first day that you got that card, you're two months into it. And in that 90 days, you need to be tested. And if you have sleep apnea, you need to be compliant on therapy. So if it's 55 days to get in for a test, Say you called on the first day, you're two months in, it's going to be another two weeks before you get your results of that test. And then if you're using your insurance, it, you know, they have uh, 15 days to approve 15 business days to approve a prior auth, meaning we're three months into it before you even get the, the treatment equipment for it. In the Seattle market on the direct consumer side of the business, my record for an infra of getting a patient set up on therapy from initial point of contact, from the point that a medical examiner sent me a referral to the point that that driver was set up on a CPAP machine is 16 hours. That is incredible. I mean, that is absolutely incredible to take away something that can take months and months to within less than a day. So I feel like we can keep going on and on, Is but we want to kind of bring this home. So the, is there any final parting words or topics or just the, the idea that you would like to close uh, this conversation with? Well, you know, the one thing that I would just like to say, you know, with work steps, specifically on the sleep side of, of things, the amount of experience that we have, specifically on the, on both sides of medicine, the traditional side and the occupational health, we've got Dr. Hoffman, who wrote the federal recommendation. I've got 18 years experience in the field, but the folks that I work with, the people that I've brought on to run our program for us, blow my experience out of the water. We've got Dr. Vikas Jain, who is faculty at Stanford. He sits on a couple of different panels with the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. The folks that uh, that I hold my board with, the uh, Board of Registered Polysomnography Technologists, he's the director of the group that writes that test, <laughs> the examination for that. We've got oh, wow. Dr. Ruben Walia, who's our medical uh, sleep medical director. He was voted one of Seattle's top sleep physicians by his peers. Jody Holm, who heads up our respiratory therapist in Austin, she got her start 20, I think it's somewhere between 25, 30 years ago at NASA Ames doing research in our fatigue countermeasures program. You know, we've got a rock solid team here and we're doing some really great things. It's been fun for me. I, I worked for 15 years in the same hospital and at the point that I was ready to leave there, it was just a job. Today, I get to learn new things every day. You know, marrying traditional healthcare with occupational healthcare and risk management has been a lot of fun for me. And yeah, that's about it. Well, that's fantastic. We really appreciate your time. And kind of just in summary, I, I know that, you know, I have family members who have used CPAP and realizing that there's change. So I, I think a really good message is that it's common. You're not the only one who has it. You may have it and not know it. And just being aware of that, I'm sure the, the time effort to put in compared to the great benefit you'll get back just by finding out, checking if you have it, and then getting some of those simple solutions to prevent it and treat it can be life-changing for so many people in any setting. So thank you so much for your time. It has really been a pleasure to, and we definitely would love to have you on in the future to 
bring in and talk about more of this and some other topics of that. So thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Well, after that interview, I will say that I feel like I need to check my next circumference, as I said before, and realizing how simple it is, like these aren't hard things to get checked out and the benefits of getting a good night's sleep. I mean, all the other health complications that come along with not getting a good night's sleep. So just that benefit, I personally am going to go out and get myself checked for all these, uh, these different symptoms or flags. Yeah. And it sounds like you should probably have work steps to it too. I mean, just the ease, how they make it so easy for somebody. They walk you through the process. They, you know, kind of do a video conference. You can do it in your own home. Most of the people that I know that have had sleep apnea tests have had to go and do sleep studies like in a hospital, in a hospital bed or a setting. And no matter how homey they make it, it's never going to be your bed, your pillow, your perfect sleeping situation. So how can that be, you know, an, an accurate test? And with work steps, they you can do it in your own home. So that just just sounds so amazing. And if anybody is interested in having work steps uh, help out with any sleep studies or with their transportation department, please visit them at www.workstepssleep.com. That's W-O-R-K-S-T-E-P-S-S-L-E-E-P. P.com. Definitely. Well, and I just want to thank you as the listener for listening to this episode of Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, or we are bringing the power of prevention to you. To get started preventing injuries, visit our website at wellworkforce.com, or you can feel free to email us at podcast at wellworkforce.com with any questions or comments. And remember, prevention improves lives. <laughs>